Welcome to episode 67 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. On this episode, our guests are Neha Choksi and Allison O'Daniel. Neha Choksi works in Inglewood, California and in Bombay, India. Choksi works in multiple media, across multiple disciplines, and at times collaboratively, and in unconventional settings to explore how we seek, experience, and acknowledge losses and transformations in material, temporal, and psychological terms. In a way, it's your life that's embedded in the work. It's, and I find that beautiful because it's, an, it's a slant way of in, including your experience of making the work into the, into the work. And it affects people's read without knowing that it's actually your life story. Allison O'Daniel is a visual artist and filmmaker working across sound, narrative, sculpture, installation, and performance. The sculptures are always this way of pointing to the fact that there's this like long, detailed process. I'm not at all interested in making objects that end up as props in the film. I like this like double life of the project, that there's this physical, hard to kind of comprehend sculptural life that's really based on just the generative process of making, and then there's this narrative film. At the end of the show, we're going to hear a song from New York musician Lacey Spacecake. Another thing that we uh, want to tell you about is that we're planning to release a transcript of this episode specifically for members of our audience who are hard of hearing, and also for anyone else who is interested in uh, a transcript of the show. Yeah, we're really excited to do that, and um, we're still figuring out the transcription process and the, the the programs and the technology involved in that. So if it's not out when you're listening to this episode, it will be soon, and we'll let you know where to find it when it's out. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. It is. Neha Choksi and Allison O'Daniel, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for Thanks coming. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you. So you guys were both in Made in L.A. at the Hammer Museum here in Los Angeles. You wanted to tell us about the show and your work in the show? Sure. This is Neha here. I have a four-channel video installation titled, if you read it as a single sentence, it's Everything Sunbright in the Womb Lives Ever Rehearsing the End Indirectly. And it is sort of my multi-year exploration of our conflicted and yet beautiful relationship with the sun, which is a source of all power and also the source of a lot of harm to us. So that's kind of where that piece came from. Allison? I have a three-channel video installation as well as three sculptures. Um, and they're all in reference to this project I've been working on for five years called The Tuba Thieves. And that title comes from the fact that tubas were stolen from high schools for a few years um, all across Southern California. And um, I've basically been making this film project backwards. I started working with um, three composers trying to make the musical soundtracks first. And in order for them to actually make the music, I gave them three individual lists of references for them to respond to. So Christine Sun Kim, Steve Roden, and Ethan Frederick Green are the composers that I worked with. And um, each of them got different things to respond to. So Christine Sun Kim, for example, I gave her 
the articles about the tuba thefts and then a picture of Louise Nevelson's eyelashes. And then Steve Roden, I gave him a picture of a concert hall in Maver- called the Maverick Concert Hall in Woodstock, New York. Um, the, a picture of the path that a Zamboni takes when it cleans the snow. Um, Ethan Frederick Green, I told him, there's more things on each of these lists, but Ethan, I told to think about sex scenes, to think about kaleidoscopes, um, breathing instruments. So th- they were really random things, just things that I kind of wanted to hand over to other people and tell them, you make music out of that. And then I listened to their music, wrote a screenplay, and then I've been slowly shooting scenes and showing them with all of these missing scenes as like an acknowledgement um, in the exhibitions. And then I make sculptures that refer back to those lists of references. Yeah, I mean, and that all, your your process obviously involves a lot of other people mm-hmm. um, and their relationship to sound and music. And I guess my work didn't stand, start off as being related to other people, but it ended up being a multi, multiple year, multiple project piece that ended up being stitched together in this in this uh, one avatar. Uh, and in a way, it all started over a decade ago when I was doing a play with Rehan Engineer in Bombay in India called That Time, a Samuel Beckett play. And um, I was doing the videography, a scenography for it and ended up shooting a bunch of sunsets from the crematorium on the southern tip of the island where pretty much everyone in my family that has passed away has been cremated. And um, that sort of set me really working with the sun in many different ways. So I ended up applying to go um, into the archives at the Solar Observatory in southern India to you know, find more information. And I worked with an astrophysicist um, towards that. And that led to me writing a screenplay, which involves and a, a theater play that involves this character of an astrophysicist. And it, it kind of just grew from there, and it ended up being a piece which has elements of s- things that I researched in the archives, elements of a piece that I did in Sydney for the Sydney Biennial, um, and a piece that I did in Dhaka earlier this year in Bangladesh. And that kind of allowed me to stitch together what I realized I was dealing with was birth, life, and death. And I didn't realize it until I had all the material in front of me. So my process was, I didn't know where I was headed in a way. It just took 10 years to get here. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I think a lot about my process as like this listening process that's not prioritizing the ears. So it's like kind of reimagining what it means to listen or to be a sponge or just like all this information kind of coming in and then how I respond to it, allow it into the film, allow it to direct the making of the film or even you know, like anecdotal things, like the main actor in my film. She was in my last film and she's deaf. I found out after we finished filming that the last project that she was a drummer. And there were all these kinds of poetic connections of like these tubas being stolen, students having to deal with like not having the deepest sound in their band um, to the Maverick Concert Hall, which is where John Cage premiered 433, to Nike being a drummer. Like there were just all these like kind of beautiful resonant um, relationships that I wanted to explore about not um, not sound or no sound or not having sound or like not making sound or making sound but not having RL access to it. And 
you know, how access shifts. And so I'm curious about um, how you feel about like your audience not um, maybe having access to all of the information. And is that, I'm just interested in how you, um, how you respond to that, like to the fact that there is, there are so many layers, there's so much um, in terms of background information, background research, what, yeah, what is your relationship to the audience? Um, it's complicated, not only because I expect a lot from the audience, but also uh, which audience are we talking about, which is something that you can grapple with. In my mm -hmm. case, I have, I built a career kind of in India and then moved back to Los Angeles. So I have two audiences with very different cultural backgrounds, very different ways of approaching things, and very different uh, knowledge bases that they bring to their work. Um, so references to, um, let's say, a particular plant or a particular way of doing things or my, my mother's religion may not actually translate to an audience anywhere else. And then references that are very LA-specific may not translate to an audience in India or anywhere else in the world. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm even bothering to, um, at this point at least, I am not trying to figure out a way to force a conversation between those parts of my local existences. Because I do have two very local, grounded, rooted ways of being in two different places. I don't want to do the work of explaining anything about my two different cultures to each other. I kind of think the burden partly lies on the audience to do that work for themselves. Um, and I realize that's very, very, um, I mean, it's, it's, it comes like it's, it feels like it's coming from an ungenerous position, but I'm actually giving them the generosity of like choosing to view from their cultural position rather than forcing everybody to see everything always from the Western eye, which is the de facto um, way of looking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I yeah, I love that characterization of it as a generous act because it's also allowing space for the poetic, for interpretation for my agency as a viewer. Um, yeah, and that's like always, I, I really, um, I don't like work where I'm being told what to think. Um, so thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and you might want to talk a little bit about how your work kind of actually deals with different cultures. It's just a different way of talking about culture. Like when we say culture, we typically just mean ethnicities, but mm -hmm. there are other cultures out there, and it's not just ethnicities, it's also class, um, which I think my work sometimes uh, delves into. There's mm -hmm. species things, and in your case, there's a whole yeah. other layer. Yeah, I mean, I've been really struck by, like, all of the articles that have come out about Made in L.A., where there's, like, constantly this this sort of, like, oh, this is so great, there's so many identity politics in this show, and every time they do the list, they leave out ability, <laughs> and I'm always just, like, what the fuck, to be honest, like, like, it really bothers me that like, no matter how much we, you know, talk about the like, you know, these different viewpoints, ability, disability is still left out, like, no matter how progressive people think or if it's being, in, it's always last on the list, it's always right. last always on the list. Right and it's, and I will say, like, 
people are recognizing it more. I have I have seen it in the last like two years, but I kid you not, every single article that has come out about this show, never has that been mentioned. And I'm just like, hello, like, you know, like this is actually really being talked about. And on Friday, um, I led an event that, um, or I, I organized this event that um, had um, four people, me being one of those four, who've worked on my film talking together and then a meditation that was led by a deaf meditation instructor, Matt Reinig, who's based in LA. And then a critical response from a deaf scholar whose name is resonant Moogs Rydell. And she's brilliant. And she, it was amazing to hear her talk about my work because she situated it within crip theory, which like I have never specified, but I'm, I'm aware of crip theory, which is like looking at the way she described it was looking at, using sort of lived experience through disability as a way to destabilize the kind of heteronormative, um, ableist, racist <laughs> you know, um, position in the world. And it was really remarkable because I've also gotten, and we, we talked about this, um, I'm also in a show right now that's in Moscow called The Infinite Ear at the Garage Contemporary Art Museum. And this is a really amazing museum because they have developed... Um, this whole sort of um, segment of the museum that's devoted to a deaf population. And mm -hmm. there is um, one person in particular who's developed all of these um, accessible ways of engaging the museum shows. And so when I was there for the opening, I was in conversation with him and he was really hard on me and was um, basically like, you know, art should be 100% accessible to everyone all the time. And he was asking, you know, when he's hard of hearing and he was like, you know, when I see your film, how am I supposed to know that that stopwatch that's ticking is ticking? And he didn't actually ask that as a question. He said it as like a there was a period at the end of the sentence. And it was really it was like a grad school critique. It was like just really critical. And I wish he had asked me because basically what I've been trying to do is develop this system of captioning that's where every single edit in the film considers, like goes through this thing in my head that's how does a deaf audience, how does a hard of hearing audience, and how does a hearing audience respond to this edit? So every single edit is like going through this acknowledging process of like, oh, I have three, as I mean, many more than just three, but I have this like huge spectrum of responses to the way that this edit happens. And so, um, so I, you know, like I do have actual captions that are kind of like being exploded, but then I also have edits that are meant to kind of function as captions. So for example, there's a scene that's a recreation of um, the very last night that there was a punk show at the Deaf Club in San Francisco in 1979, which was an actual deaf social club that hosted like West Coast punk shows. And um, I recreated that scene and there's one moment where the beat of the music that they're playing is represented through this like flipping between two channels. One is black and then one is the image. And that I think about that black as a caption. And then also the fact that there's two channels is really meant to represent two very different responses or two different perceptions of the film. and. So I, I wished he had actually asked me and given me the chance to to speak about this thing that I'm really trying to develop, which also involves that, you know, if you see something, the source of sound is there. There's never off screen sound. 
And if there is, it's specified like radio announcer and then whatever they're saying. So that's like written. And um, yeah, and then sometimes there are captions where like the letters are like spreading apart, which is meant to signify that there's this whole like breakdown in the way that sound is being conveyed um, rather than typical systems of captions, which are just like music, which right. is not helpful, <laughs> is super irritating, is actually really insulting because it's just like... I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. I've been articulating for the first time, like since being in Moscow, I've been articulating this, um, this, you know, I've been thinking a lot about captions and there is something that really bothers me in, okay, so just to preface this, like ADA, totally necessary. I am not like, like we, we need that. We must have that. I wish the whole world had it. Yeah totally necessary but there is something in captioning that sometimes I feel like there is this lifting up of and I'm doing air quotes as I say that lifting up of the deaf experience to up to this hierarchical hearing position and I just like like that value system I want to throw it out the window like I think that there are other it, it is really this question of value systems and like who's developing it, who's naming one as the expectation, what happens if we just like open the floodgates to this experience of not getting everything. And like there is poetry in that. Also, there's frustration. I'm not denying that. I've lived that many times. But I think sometimes the frustration stems from this hierarchical position that this like hearing experience is the experience, whereas in my experience so far, like many of the deaf collaborators I worked with, just deaf friends that I've made, and also just moving more into deaf and hard of hearing culture, there's a perceptual way of engaging with the world that is of so much value, is so beautiful, is so like, um, it's different. It just is different and that's great. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can hear us every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on K-Chung, 1630 AM, Los Angeles. Or you can find us anywhere we get your podcasts. So iTunes Store, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, all that stuff. Go there and uh, download an episode. Also, it would really help us out if you have a friend or an acquaintance or not a friend, someone you just met at the office, who you think might enjoy the show, tell them about it. That's the thing that helps us out the most. And in that spirit, we want to tell you about a friend of ours who has a great project called L Star Murals. It's a business. It's a it's it's more than a project. It's a business, and it specializes in interior custom murals, nursery murals, hand lettering, hand painted signs, chalkboards, and more. L Star Murals is run by Lauren McElroy, a Philadelphia area native who lives in Los Angeles, California, and you can find her at lstarmurals.com. She does really great work, uh, and also she has an upcoming show at Elephant Art Space here in L.A., so stay tuned for that. And check it out, yeah, for sure. And now back to our conversation with Neha Choksi and Allison O'Daniel. I like what you were saying, Allison, about um, allowing space for different perceptual experiences of the world, especially, um, yeah, just letting something sit experientially, sensorially, the touchy feeliness of it, the whether you hear it or not, just letting yourself sit with the experience rather than having everything translated for you. Mm-hmm. And I what I was really um, 
I mean, I think that's why we both probably not only make films, but we make a lot of sculpture. Yeah, my, I'm, my sculptures are always, well, they function on a bunch of levels. On one level, they are very practical. Like they are meant specifically to deflect, absorb, change the aural reality of the space. So, um, so basically this came about because I had this show in 2015 in France in this space that had this huge like vaulted concrete ceiling. It was a beautiful space, but I got in there and I was just like, like so many art spaces, I was like, this is a, an acoustic nightmare and I am about to show a bunch of videos and it's going to look and sound terrible like so many video installations do because the space is not meant for it. And I was just like, I have to actually think of a solution because I want people to be able to hear these videos and and I wanna be able to play multiple ones within the space. And um, so I had had this um, multiple studio visits where I would tell people about the fact that I had given Christine Sun Kim this picture of Louise Nevelson's eyelashes. So Louise Nevelson, you know, she would always be in her like amazing studio gear, but she would still have these super impractical 1960s huge fake eyelashes on. And I just loved that. And so I gave Christine that picture. And, you know, it's I mean, in a way, it's this really beautiful riddle of like, how do you how is that even interpreted through sound? And I knew Christine would do it because her her relationship to sound is live through lived experience and then because she's deaf and then totally there's a there's a quickness for it to be super abstract to be thrown out the window to be re you know like reimagined in ways that are just like I don't know that are completely new every time that I see her work with it so I handed that to her and I was like you know what what is the sound of that and um I would have studio visits I would tell people this and I would do this google image search to show them the specific image that I had given her of Louise Nevelson smoking a cigar look it up it's amazing and um and when all of the thumbnails would come up there was one Louise Nevelson sculpture that would be kind of low and in the thumbnail the size of the thumbnail I would I just had this thought that it looked like acoustic foam and then later after the studio visit, I opened it up and looked at it. And then my first thought was, actually, it looks like a quilt. Like, it looks like quilting patterning. And then when I got to France, I was like, I have to figure out how to deal with sound. And I was like, oh, I'll just remake those Louise Nevelson sculptures as an out of acoustic foam and then as a soundproofing quilt. And so it was, like, super logical, super practical, but coming from this, like, weird, not logical, not practical, kind of, like, poetic, linear process of collaboration and I really love honoring that process of collaboration like in a lot of ways I'm more interested in the kind of like storytelling of working with these composers and making this film backwards and so I'm always trying to kind of like reference back you know like reference back to these original lists of references and so the sculptures are always this way of pointing to the fact that there's this like long detailed process. There was this original list of references and I'm not at all interested in making objects that end up as props in the film. I like them to, I like this like double life of the project that there's this like physical, hard to kind of comprehend sculptural life that's really based on just the like sort of generative process of like making and then 
there's this narrative film and the ways that I'm kind of approaching them are somewhat similar, but they don't show themselves in either modality. And then most recently, I've been thinking a lot about the children's game Telephone. So the show that I have at Shulamit Nazarian is all based on this children's game Telephone. But I started thinking about how beautiful it would be to play Telephone with only hard of hearing people, like just that it would be so much more abstract and and that the like mishearings would be so, you know, like so much more interesting. And so I started thinking of like a process of making as like a series of mishearings. So basically I started with that picture of Louise Nevelson's eyelashes, went to the actual like table legs that she would find and put in her assemblages, included that in the Made in LA sculpture. And then in the Shulamit Nazarian show, made these like really tall table legs that were kind of like the third person's mishearing. And then like, and then there's these other sort of like long abstracted columns that are like the ninth person's mishearing and without the sort of like fifth through the eighth people you know so it's like all this like missing information but it's these like sculptures that are coming from the starting point and then going through all of these like fuck-ups so yeah that's that's beautiful I did see that show yesterday oh good thank you (laughs) um yeah I I on the other hand I've never really mixed the two uh, except last year when I did a piece called Faith and Friction, which is a seven-channel piece that is actually about my faith in engagement, but engagement as friction and allowing that lack of transi- translatability um, to bubble up, and that's okay. And it was really about me and my friends, and I collected a bunch of my friends in India. I mean, they all collected a bunch of my friends to come to India and then do this piece four hours outside of Bombay at this construction site for a Jain ashram. And uh, there were props that were involved that were based on my collaborations with or conversations with my friends prior to doing this piece where the question posed was, how would we relate to each other? What would you like to do? What are ideas that you have about you and me together. And it was simply beautiful how the conversations got translated into objects, got translated into things that we used on site, and some of them were discarded, some of them were used up, and one survived. And it, you know, now we'll probably end up at a sculpture park in Bangladesh. Um, and that's like an afterlife of the piece. But the, the, the life that was created and the relationships that we had as a result of our conversations and as a result of these objects. Uh, For instance, um, there was an abacus made out of fruits that we played around with as the last scene in the well, the last thing scene that we shot. It's not necessarily the last scene in the film because and and anyway, the the fruits obviously got eaten up and um, the structure of the relationship between all of us uh, at the abacus, the fruit abacus, was um, we could pick the fruits, we could eat it ourselves, we could offer it to someone else, we could throw it on the ground, but the only two lines allowed to us to, to communicate with each other were, I want it, no, you can't have it. Those are the only two lines allowed. But none of this necessarily makes it into the film in quite that way because I didn't edit all those films. Part of the collaborative process for me structurally was to then take all those 
days of footage of all of us collected together in that pressure cooker situation, give it to different editors and friends of mine to edit so that each film has its own texture that comes from that person's conversation with me again. And then they all have to live together um, simultaneously. So each channel is a different editor? Mm -hmm. Of which one is me. So um, and interconnections that we all have and the collaborations that we all have are becoming a lot more important in my work as opposed to earlier where, you know, I anesthetize myself in four farm animals, but it's the, the relationship with the audience is not quite as conceptually ingrained in the work. I mean, it's there, of course. Calling a piece a petting zoo in, 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 in invites the idea of an audience petting you. But um, And so I'm kind of curious um, when you say that, you know, you, you, you're interested in these parallel lives for your objects and, and the film. And I obviously was perfectly happy bringing it together. Like maybe there's something there for you to respond to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like, I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is it's this acknowledgement of experience. And so for me, it's, 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 I guess it's like a sort of philosophical desire to be comfortable with things not appearing at first cohesive. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I find that real. I'm really inspired by that. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, I guess even if I have objects that end up making sense as part of the piece, I've never shown them together. And so, like, yeah, I totally get the non-cohesiveness and also the multimodality in what you can think about things and let it lie in mm-hmm. its own material existence, mm-hmm. uh, doing its own thing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's enough detail in, like, my installation in Made in L.A., for example, there's, you know, this Zamboni pattern that's made out of acoustic carpet underlay, which is a material, you know, put under carpet to muffle your footsteps. And then there's this composite of seven Louise Nevelson sculptures made out of various densities of foam, um, including like at the softest is the acoustic foam and then slightly higher densities of foam. It's all still pretty soft. And then this one giant block of very soft, like absorbent foam. And then um, and then this steel sculpture that's has this, the eyelashes on them, has actual false eyelashes on them. And two of those are remakes of Louise Nevelson Two of those are remakes of Louise Nevelson sculptures. And then one of them is this Zamboni pattern. And I know it's information that somebody encounters and is probably visually just like, what do I do with this? But if you take the time to read the materials, there's a pointing towards a sonic aural experience. So let me ask a question on that. And I think for both of you, um, because I think both of your guys work at Made in LA, I I always wonder, or I often wonder, um, how does... Do you think about, or, and if so, how do you think about, what's the difference between an audience member who comes in and spends like five, ten minutes versus an audience member that maybe spends an entire hour in, 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 in either of your pieces? Like, what, I mean, do you think about what you're giving to someone who just shows up for five minutes in, in a different way than what you give 
someone over an hour? Are you thinking about? I'm definitely not thinking about the five minute person. Um, mm -hmm. I, I expect people to stay there the whole time, if not in one sitting, at least over a few sittings. Um, and if they don't do that, they can say, say that they saw part of it, but they will never be able to say they saw the work, And they, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I don't expect them to stay for the whole thing. Mine is a 51-minute loop. I don't expect, it, expect them to because it's been jammed into my head for forever that people have what, like this, I feel like the anecdote is like a 30-second uh, attention span for video. But I've... You know, I've made, I had a show with Art in General, I made a 52 minute video loop and consistently I had people sit through the whole thing. And so what I will say is that when I edit, I think a lot about opacity simultaneously with entertainment. And I am like really trying to get the audience to sit there. So like I am pretty critical of Hollywood and yet I, I know it intimately because we are all trained in Hollywood mm -hmm. by default and I I really do try and think about how to keep an audience sitting there. So if you're thinking about the five minute visitor you're thinking about how to convert them to at least a 10 minute or a I try to yeah right. I, yeah I really I really do I mean I I hope that they will sit there and I mean similar to you I'm not um, I'm not making work for the five minute visitor either sure. Um, but I recognize that those people are missing my work. You know, I, I know that that's um, a thing I risk in my work. But would you also say, either of you individually, that when you're thinking about how you're setting up the installation, where the projection is on the wall, how the projections relate to each other, what the room is like, how you're arranging the room, mm -hmm. that that is, on some level, communicating to the, someone that is just walking in for the first 30 seconds. So you must be thinking about it on some level. Maybe I, sh I should not say I expect the audience to sit there for that long, but I certainly want them to sit for the entire yeah. thing. Right. But having said that, that is not, I don't even, I mean, I have greater expectations of an than audience that. member mm -hmm. than even just sitting through my work, which is, I don't think you can get what I'm, I guess what I'm, about or the or the texture of my work if you haven't followed the work for a while so you are only going to see one piece you're not going to see my work so far in mm -hmm. a way and yes and to, to address your question about um the space i mean of course i'm thinking about the audience i'm thinking about i'm aware that there are people who will spend 30 seconds to two minutes to five minutes to people who will stay and see a piece six times over as somebody mm -hmm. did of one of my pieces in the past and actually came up to me to say they sat through it six times and they had already seen it once before. Um, and it was not a short piece. So so I'm, 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 I'm looking for that kind of engagement and with the engagement with the ideas in there that may not necessarily... Um, they are in the work, but the you know they need to do extra work to get get to. And I think the positioning of the space, especially in Allison's uh, um, installation at Made in LA, and and slightly in my my piece, it's not as obvious as in uh, structurally as in Allison's piece, are important components of the meaning of the work. And uh, for me, it was very important to have an embodied experience of that space. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Allison will have. Yeah, well, for 
for my Made in LA installation and the installation in Shulamit, I'm I'm using these like two really different kind of approaches where I have I've definitely been in my installation in Made in LA with people who are standing there or sitting there watching it for a while and seeing the people who walk in and turn around and walk back out. Like if, if I think there's something about the way that we organized everything in my room where if you don't walk like 10 feet in, you can turn around and walk out. And all the people who walk at least like seven to 10 feet in, they then get directed. So there's this thing that happens to your like physical body where you're forced, if you're watching the videos, you're forced to like, as a group and mass like shift and turn because you can't see like there's one video in particular that has Christine Sun Kim, one of the composers, she's signing the script of the film, but she's translated it into American sign language. And so she's, she's signing like a completely different syntax, a completely different order of the scene. Steve Roden's voice is saying the American sign language, translation that she made and also her translation is for a teleprompter so there's also like notes that she makes for what her hand should be doing so instead of just saying the translation she also says okay two fingers up and so that it's just like notes for herself to know what to do because she's performing it in front of the camera and then on the other side is the actual English script and they don't line up but you can tell if you kind of like flip your head you can tell that it's the same like origin of information and um and it's specifically meant for you to make a choice of like which which one you're going to like get more of and and then you know like one video will end and then the projection is on the other side and everybody will kind of like move in mass and it's really lovely for me to watch that happen and then in Shulamit there's all these ropes on the floor that like really direct the way that you physically move through the space you're listening to The People on Chung 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Simmons. You can hear The People every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on Chung 1630 AM. And you can definitely find us anywhere that you find podcasts. And if you are listening to this and you like the show, you should tell a friend about it. It's going to be great. Yeah, it helps us. Also, if you're somewhere where you can leave a rating and review, leave us a rating and review. Only good ones, please. If you're not going to leave a good one, why bother? It's a waste of your time. Exactly. And now back to our conversation with Neha Choksi and Allison O'Daniel. So this is the third podcast interview that I've done. And you know, there's, it, there's a problematic irony about it. Every time I do it, I'm really aware that I have an audience that I'm specifically making my work for and with that has no access to this and um it's an interesting thing that's always you know kind of like weighing on my mind as I do these interviews and um and it's a question really of, it's a question of access right again yeah yeah and it's like it's this recording a podcast is not the work but it's like kind of a part of the world of the work yeah, and uh, making that for a group for a group that can't access it is is well, it's exclusionary. Yeah, you know, yeah. big time, and it's not the at this moment, it's not the easiest thing to do to create a transcript of 
a one hour audio uh, situation. I mean, we're going to, we're going to try try. and do that uh, and see how successful we are at that. But Mm -hmm. we can commit to saying that we're going to, we're going to do it. Yeah, we'll do it. Cool. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. It's interesting because I've, you know, the event that I um, just organized on Friday at the Hammer, that was the first time that I've had a deaf scholar write about the work and present about the work. And I specifically sought it out because I have only had hearing writers write about the work. And there have definitely been moments where I have had to do some pretty intense education. Like the New York Times wrote something a few years ago, and I, the my producer and I, we were really intense. Like you cannot say hearing impaired. And it was fascinating because most people don't even know that that's problematic. Like it's NPR, every time they ever talk about the deaf and hearing impaired, they say that. And it's like, oh, I cringe so much. So hearing impaired is like an old school, totally like not politically correct term. And the deaf and hard of hearing community has been saying this and like trying to express this like since the early 80s and it just doesn't you know it's like okay marginalized community like that just that information just doesn't seem to land it doesn't register it doesn't yeah. register like just I, like i hear the word impaired and i'm like obviously that's a diminutive term but because it's so widely used i've seen things that i wrote like eight years ago where i used that term and it was a process of education for me as well, you know, and it's it's fascinating. But like when I was working with that New York Times writer, he actually was like, I don't know if we can not say hearing impaired because it's in our like they have a specific, I don't know, dictionary style sheet. or something. Yeah, style style sheet. Sheet. Yeah. 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 And he was like, I don't think it's been changed. And I was like, you have to change it. Like, if you're going to do this, you have to like I. it's not okay. it's not OK because it automatically excludes the deaf audience because they will read it and they will be like, Oh, written for a hearing audience, period. We don't care. Well, we're not guaranteeing that the the transcript will be out when this episode comes out, but we will get it out. Um, so I, um, Neha, I was interested in talking to you about process. Um, because I think one of the things that's similar in both of our work is that there isn't necessarily kind of like a finite, like this start and this finish to the projects. And that we draw, we make these projects and then we draw from like all of these kind of ancillary like tentacles that are going out from the projects and bring them back in, give them more importance, and then sometimes like let things go that seem important. And um, I just was at a performance that you did about the next project you're doing. And it was... A performance but it was very much like witnessing somebody's pre-production um and it was it was really it was a really interesting conversation about the next project so maybe you can talk about that but it was one of the things that specifically was interesting to me was about watching you lay bare a thinking process and then that kind of becoming content so maybe like this uh this sort of marriage of like process and um develop development as content can you speak to that yeah thank you Allison. it's a good question um and i guess uh the the performance conversation that you came to was uh, a precursor to a project where i attend elementary school 
for a year in Los Angeles as a way to think about how we learn to become who we are and who we want to be. And these are questions that I've increasingly found uh, important because of, as I was referring to the Everything Sunbright piece, which is at the Hammer, um, I got interested in parent-child relationships. And that is a educational relationship. It's an empathetic model. It's got all of these things that are working um, that allow a culture to be passed down from a parent to a child. Uh, and how are we, you want to define the parent, the parent culture to the child culture? And I just that sort of spun out into... Um, me thinking about education and the value of it and how we get socialized into being who we are um, as social creatures. And so that's kind of where the process started, but I'm sure it started way earlier in, I want to say maybe seventh grade (laughs) for me, when I started reading all these books that my mom had around about... um, exceptional children and just teaching children that I was interested in. She was training to be a teacher and when, when they lived in the States before they moved to India and ended up doing something else with her life. But there all this material was around that I absorbed and was very interested in it because I felt schooling was completely failing me. And it continued to fail me until high school. Like, I mean, until I was done with high school. I just hated school. Um, and that interest in how we become who we are, like I was this quiet kid who then came to UCLA and was not quiet anymore <laughs> at all. And this is something we talked about at that performance. And I think that was the germination of a lot of the, the interest in, in um, the project, which has now become into a more um, considered excavation of my own relationship with both childhood and adulthood and I'm allowing myself the space and the process and the time and the luxury of doing that at a very very slow real-time pace and I don't really know what the end result is Um, but you mentioned that you have a plan to do one year of elementary school, one year of middle school, and one year of high school, right? I would love to do that, yeah. It's a one year in elementary school, then one year off to process it and allow me some break, and then go back to middle school, take a year off, and then go to the final year of high school, um, and then obviously have time off. Again. And are you going to be specifically looking at the sort of institutional plans for these, you know, these separate school groups, or is it going to be a social like a social thing that's going on or both? I mean, the ways in which I'm thinking about um, the social, the cultural, the educational, institutional, personal, familial, uh, also like led me this summer, I went to the Philippines to do a project, um, to do a site visit for a project where I was going to be dealing with um, bunch of workshops that I had access to and I could you know potentially do anything I wanted with in those spaces uh, with those workshops with the labor and there's 300 people working and while I was there I learned of this curriculum that is being implemented by another section of this program that is not related to the art part of this program uh, where they are inviting 
three outlying village areas uh, to send their youth, uh, especially those who have not been productive members of society, productive as in the capitalist model of productive, to have a sort of character rebuilding uh, exercise. And I know it's done from the goodness of the heart in many ways as patrons of that area to you know, fund this, to pay people to show up to learn how to be better workers, so to speak, and to learn how to be better husbands. Uh, they excluded the women at some point, like very early on uh, in the process, because it got very difficult to manage it for them, uh, from what I understood. But what I, un- what I realized is I'd gone with one idea into that space, thinking that I was interested in how the individuality of each worker who's in the crafts workshops uh, is, you know, represented in their work and how that would be part of my work and working with everybody to getting interested in this curriculum that was like a hundred page or 200 page document um, that was about education and that I would have never found had not, you know, a stray comment from another fellow artist who knew of its existence you know, and who, who heard about this other project of mine, it's like, oh, you might be interested in this because of your elementary school project, you know. Um, and that's kind of part of the process. Like, you just one little thing leads you to another, leads you to another, and you don't know where it's going to end up. And I really don't know where this is going to end up. This, these are both inchoate projects. Really. And it sounds like you're, because it sounds like the project or the one that you ideally want to do will go on for literally years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's on purpose to allow those sorts of things to happen, right? Oh, absolutely. Like new strategies to appear and for you to take, right? Mm-hmm. To be open and to allow the generosity of the world to influence my generosity, you know, I mean. That's interesting because my project takes a long time mostly because of finances, because making a film is so, like the economic reality of making a film is... It's just so intense. And yet I'm now working with a really amazing producer who came on. Her name's Rachel Netterveld. She came on to my project about a year and a half ago. And she keeps saying to me, just like, let's just let's just make the feature now. Like, don't worry about the money. We'll just we'll make it happen. And to have someone say to me, don't worry about the money is so mind boggling. And there's a part of me that's become used to the reality of making my work in the way that I've made it, because I now find it extremely generative to have these, you know, these pauses that are imposed upon me because I run out of financial, you know, like I I run out of the financial ability to shoot the next thing. And, And then, so then the project has to kind of develop in this other way because I have the itch or the ambition to you know like keep thinking about and making this project and so it takes these other forms and and then out of that has come this realization that like showing segments of the film with the scene numbers in the beginning of it and people knowing that there's like all this missing content is just kind of helping the content become more realized like knowing that you're sitting there and you don't know what's in between these two scenes but somehow they're going to link up I find that, like, I love that experience for the audience. In a way, it's your life that's embedded in the work. It's, and I find that beautiful because it's, an, it's a slant way of in, including your experience of making the work into the, into the work. And it affects people's read without knowing that it's actually 
your life story Mm -hmm. in a way. Well, yeah, and also waiting becomes kind of pregnant with like hearing, not hearing. I think it's pregnant with anticipation and with loss at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, of, of the future that could be in, in a past that isn't. And temporally, there are all these presences and absences. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It was really great. Yeah, thanks yeah, for being thank on the show. Thank yeah. you for having us. You've been listening to the People on K Chung, sixteen thirty a.m. I'm Matthew Timmons, and I'm Ben White. Remember, find the People wherever you download your podcasts and tell your friends about it. Yes, please do. That would be great. Our interstitial music, as always, is Ockfiff by Lewis Keller. Go for it. And we're going to go out with a song from Brooklyn, New York musician Lacey Spacecake. More fuzz, more chorus, more reverb, more eyeliner. The album is The Stars Have Left the Sky, released on January 1st, 2018. And the name of the song is How Do You Sleep at Night?
different experiences are great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I have something I to mean, say about it. We can all agree. 